This is day three of the 2015 Rocky Mountain Bible School. This is our third class. Our speaker is our brother Richard Morgan. Brother Richard's topic for the week is Demons and the Superstitious Mind. And the title of today's class is Casting Out Demons. Brother Richard. Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. A little bit of uh, review from yesterday to begin with. Uh, we put up this slide yesterday, which was a little bit complicated, and we were talking about how natural the superstition instinct is to us, how that's the, the kind of behavior thinking we default to by nature, the fast processing part of our brain. And uh, I was making the point that this actually rewards us. This is this feel okay system where we're rewarded by giving in to our naturally superstitious uh, ways. But I didn't really emphasize why we're rewarded, why we feel better if we are controlled by our, our superstitious mind. And uh, really the reason behind this, brothers and sisters, the reason why we tend to default to that is because it makes us have that sense of control. And that's something that we desire as human beings. We want to feel as if we're in control. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. It's a false sense of security, but that's our nature, isn't it? We want to be able to control situations. We, want to, we, we fool ourselves into thinking that if we take or leave the umbrella, that somehow we'll be able to affect outcomes. And so that's why we tend to be superstitious, ritualistic in our behavior is because we want that sense of control. We want to feel safe. We want to feel secure. Now, the danger of this comes in a religious context. Think of the truth as like a house, and it's a firm, sure house because it's true. It's well built. It's built on a firm foundation, and we can trust in it because it is, by definition, true. And the most rational thing in the mind is to trust in the truth, to trust that God is right, that that house is well built, that it has been built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And the most rational thing is to relinquish all control and to trust that God is right. But the problem is we don't like to relinquish that control. So what tends to happen is that we start constructing a scaffolding around the truth. Because we want to prop it up. And it makes us feel safe and secure. And that scaffolding, uh, some of the traditions, some of the ritualistic behavior that tends to come into our religious lives. And the problem is that that can often become the focus of our attention. And it hides the truth. It's behind all this scaffolding that we think is, is keeping the truth safe and secure. And then someone comes along and says, I can't see the truth. We need to remove some of this scaffolding. And we're afraid to let go of it. We're afraid that the whole thing will come crashing down. And we become defensive of that scaffolding. And we see that, of course, in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he came to the, the Jews and challenged their traditions, their washings, and their, their Sabbath rules. Because it was just a veneer that was hiding the truth. 
And that can happen too in, in our day and, a, day and age. And we can construct for us a, a veneer, a superstitious religion. And the truth can become obscured. And that for us, it, it describes, I think, the, the danger of this superstitious mindset when it comes to us and how excitational it is to us. And, and God willing, we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, later on this week. Uh, the other thing that we looked at yesterday was this idea of how God deals with people who believed in demons and started sacrificing to demons. And we saw from Deuteronomy chapter 32 that the, the method that God used is to show that he has more power than those demons. The people ascribe the power to their gods, like, like we looked at Reshef yesterday, but Yahweh says, no, I'm in charge of lightning and thunder. I'm in charge of disease. And God demonstrates that he has more power than the supposed gods or demons of the nations. And that's a good segue into what we're going to be talking about in our class today, this subject of casting out demons. So we've looked at the Old Testament, and we've seen that really... Demons are equated with the, the false gods, the nothings, the idols of the world. They, they have no existence. And it's fairly easy to go through the Old Testament and to demonstrate the Old Testament demonology is that they're equated with gods. They don't really exist. They're, they're figments of, of people's imaginations. But then we come to the New Testament, and suddenly demons start bursting onto the scene. We start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and suddenly there's... All these miracles, people possessed with demons coming into the synagogue and Jesus casting these demons out and it, and it carries on to the Acts of the Apostles. And you think to yourself, well, why? Why do demons suddenly come on the scene in the New Testament? And why do we have these accounts, especially in the Gospel records, of Jesus casting out demons? And yet there's no explanation, is there, in those demon miracles as to what demons are. When you read them, out of the context of the teaching of Scripture, you would believe that these demons actually have an existence. That's how the Gospel records read. And this is one of the, the very difficult things we have when preaching to people who do believe in demons. They'll go to the demon miracles, and they'll say, look, Jesus cast out a demon, and the demon spoke. Demons exist. It's a very strong argument and very difficult to, to deal with. Well, the way we're going to deal with it this morning is, first of all, to go back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 78. And I want to establish another connection between what the Old Testament says about demons and the New Testament. So if you look at Psalm 78, and the first thing we're going to look at here is the plagues upon Egypt where Yahweh's supreme power was demonstrated both to Israel and to the Egyptians. And Psalm 78 contains a summary of the plagues using uh, its poetic language here. And we'll, we'll read this section here from verse 43. It says, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. 
He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore, sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flock to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength, in the tents of Ham. So there, brothers and sisters, we have a neat little summary of the, the plagues that came upon Egypt. And what we find is actually each of these plagues is a judgment upon one of the... I turned it off, don't worry. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm in control, don't worry. <laughs> each of these plagues is actually a, a, a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Now, we'll develop that in a moment. First of all, just note, um, it speaks here about uh, evil angels. Uh, that's there in um, verse 49. In the, in the ESV, it says, a company of destroying angels. If you have the King James, it says evil angels. And of course, these are negative effects upon Egypt. And, and what God is demonstrating to the Egyptians and the Israelites is he does not just create good, but he also creates evil. And his overriding fundamental principle that God is sovereign over all things. God is in control of everything. He created the heavens and earth. He creates good. He creates evil in the sense of adversity and calamity. And that's what is demonstrated, one of the things that's demonstrated in the plagues. Also an interesting thing to note in uh, verse 48, where it says he gave their flocks to thunderbolts. That's actually the same word that we looked at yesterday, that word reshef, okay? the name of the God. So another example here of a term that was used by the, the nations to describe their God, but in the Hebrew Bible it's simply a term here for uh, thunderbolts. So let's demonstrate then that these plagues upon Egypt were actually judgments against the gods of Egypt. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 12, we'll look at a, a few passages here which hint that this is the case. So Exodus chapter 12, and we read here about the tenth plague, of course, which was the judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. We're told you that at least one of these plagues was dealing with a god. So verse 12 of Exodus 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. So it's an interesting comment there that uh, these plagues were actually judgments upon the gods of of Egypt. Now have a look at Numbers chapter 33. And this might suggest that not just that final plague, but all the plagues were judgments upon their gods. So Numbers 33, and we'll just dive right into the context here again. Verse 4 says, While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord 
executed judgments. So it's confirming what we read in Exodus. And just turn back to Exodus and to chapter 18 and to the passage that, that Nate took us to with uh, Jethro. And look at how this impressed Jethro in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 10. It says, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. So that was Jethro's takeaway point from the plagues and their deliverance from Egypt. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. So there's three references there that suggest that the plagues were actually directed against the gods of Egypt. And on the next slide, we've summarized here. Now this was not put uh, together by me. This was put together by uh, Brother Jeff Cooper from Manitoulin Ecclesia. And he did uh, quite a bit of study and, and showed the parallel between the plagues and the gods of Egypt. And uh, it's possible that more than one God is referenced by each of these plagues. Now, I want you to memorize this. This will come in the quiz at the end of the week. Oh. So you can see there that uh, the Egyptians really had a multiplicity of gods. And you can see how each of these plagues were against one of the gods. And uh, maybe the most famous god of Egypt was Ra, the sun god. And God demonstrates, Yahweh demonstrates, by bringing darkness upon Egypt, that Ra, who was really their chief god, was powerless. And each of these uh, plagues, like in Deuteronomy chapter 32 from yesterday, Yahweh demonstrates that he is in control of all of these things. It's not Hecate, here this goddess of which was pictured with a frog head. It's not Hecate who was in charge of frogs. Yahweh is in charge of frogs. He created them. He has control over them. So we might ask the question then, in order to release the children of Israel from Egypt, why didn't Moses and Aaron have a little sit-down chat with Pharaoh and have a little first principle talk with him and say, you know, Pharaoh, let's go through these passages of Scripture and demonstrate in a very logical, very rational way that your gods are the figments of your imagination. They do not exist. There is one God who is Yahweh. Of course, it wouldn't work, would it? And that method doesn't work with people who are steeped in superstition and belief in demons. They're not thinking rationally. They're not thinking logically, so rationale and logic will not work to convince them. Instead, Yahweh is shown to be more powerful than the gods of Egypt. Let's have a look at a few Psalms that demonstrate this too. Look at Psalm 95 with me, if you would. Psalm 95. This is a consistent theme, and we're going to look at just uh, Psalm 95, 96, 97 that repeat the same sort of principle here, that what the Old Testament demonstrates is that Yahweh is greater than the gods. And you almost, when you read some of these Psalms, it almost reads as if these gods exist. Because in the minds of the nations around Israel, they did exist. 
You couldn't say to them they don't, they don't exist. Of course they exist, they would say. It's like when we, we talk to some people when we're preaching and we, we say, well, you didn't have that Holy Spirit experience. You didn't see that demon. In their mind, yes, of course I did. And you, you can't deal with them according to rationale and logic. So Psalm 95 simply says that Yahweh is greater. So verse 3 of Psalm 95 says, For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. So again, establishing the sovereignty of Yahweh. Psalm 96, verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations as Moses and Aaron did with the plagues, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Same principle. And Psalm 97, the same idea again. Verse 9, for you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are are exalted far above all gods. And so you can't really debate with a superstitious mind. What you need to do is show that Yahweh has more power and that you need to submit to Yahweh rather than these gods, these demons. And this comes into uh, as an exhortation again for us. Just think of the book of Hebrews, for example. The Jews in the first century and the Jewish Christians had developed this very superstitious religion, hadn't they, where they placed their emphasis on the rituals, the, 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 the performing of the rituals, the, the sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbath laws, and so on, that somehow that made them righteous in and of themselves, just the performing of ritual rather than seeing the substance behind those rituals, which was Christ. Now, what the book of Hebrews does is to demonstrate that Christ is better than those things. Similar sort of principle. Similar sort of preaching uh, method that we can use is to show that Yahweh is better than the things connected with superstition and belief in demons and and false gods, and so on. Now, come with me back to the book of Exodus, because we, as I said, we want to establish the link with uh, the New Testament and casting out demons. If you come to Exodus chapter 8, and uh, we'll look at the third plague, the, the plague of gnats, in a moment, but have a look at, first of all, at verse 10. A little hint again as to what the plagues were going to demonstrate. Verse 10 of Exodus 8 says, And he said, Tomorrow Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. So these plagues, Pharaoh, are going to come so you might understand that none of your gods are like Yahweh. Yahweh is above all of your gods. Now, have a look with me at verse uh, 16. This is the plague of gnats. 
It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now let's look at uh, what the magicians say about this plague in verse 19. This is what's picked up in the New Testament. So verse 19 says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. That was their summary. They, they, they couldn't match what Moses and Aaron were doing with their arts, their uh, magical illusions and so forth. So they had to come to the conclusion, Oh, this is the finger of God. And what's interesting about that is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself actually quotes the magicians of Egypt. And it's found in the Gospel record of Luke and chapter 11. And he actually quotes this. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 11, he actually quotes this in the context of casting out demons. So Luke chapter 11, and this is this debate that Jesus has with the, the scribes and the Pharisees about Beelzebul. And you remember how the, the scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by, by Beelzebul. And Jesus defeats their argument. So if you look at Luke chapter 11 here and at verse 19, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And then verse 20, this is where Jesus quotes the magicians of Egypt. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so we see this parallel then between the judgment upon the gods of Egypt and casting out demons. And really, when it comes to Egypt, it's a parable, isn't it, about casting out demons. It's a parable about being infected with idolatry and dealing with that. We'll develop that a little bit more in a moment. What I want us to have a look at, though, is this uh, miracle in particular. It's found in Mark chapter 1. The man with the unclean spirit found in the, the synagogue here in Mark chapter 1. Now, the following points actually come from a book written by a brother, Andrew Perry. Some of you may have read his book called Demons, Magic, and Medicine. Has anyone read that? Got a copy? I think it's, it might be out of print now, but it's well worth a read. And what uh, Brother Andrew Perry does, he was involved in this debate I mentioned in the first uh, class. Back in, the middle, of the, uh, in the, uh, the middle of the 1990s, there was an online debate with the Church of God of the Abrahamic Faith Atlanta Conference, which uh, believe in the existence of devil and demons. And out of that debate, Brother Andrew produced this book, Demons, Magic, and Medicine. And what he does is he goes through each of the demon miracles and he shows how each miracle is actually a parable of dealing with idolatry. 
And we're going to look at one example of this here in Mark chapter 1, and uh, from verses 23 to 28. And the parallel is with Egypt. What was happening in Egypt was dealing with idolatry. And as it were, casting out that idolatrous mindset from the Israelites. So Mark chapter 1 verse 23 says, Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demoniac, we might say. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So let's break down this miracle, which, as I said, is really a, a, parable, a parable of dealing with idolatry. So we see here demonstrated on this slide that Israel in Egypt were infected or possessed by idolatry. And one of the things that the Exodus was designed to do was to bring them out of that system of thought, out of that way of thinking, and to acknowledge that Yahweh, He is their God. So Israel was possessed by idolatry. They were taken out of Egypt. But uh, you've probably heard the saying that they were taken out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't taken out of them for a while. They were still infected with that thinking of Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And it's very hard. It takes a long time to deal with that superstitious mindset, which is all connected with idolatry and so forth. So what is demonstrated in the parables then is that Jesus is able to cure the nation of their idolatry. In the first century, it was more subtle with their superstitious rites and where Judaism had taken them to with their washings and so forth. It was a form of idolatry, and Jesus was able to deal with it. And each of the demon miracles goes back with Old Testament echoes where idolatry was dealt with in the history of the nation of Israel. And what Mark chapter 1 goes back to is Israel's exodus. And there's a number of verbal links here with Israel coming out of Egypt, coming out of that system of superstitious thought. So in verse 23, it says, Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. And uh, if you have the King James Version or the uh, New English Translation, also known as the Net Bible, uh, at the beginning of verse 24, the first thing the man says in those translations is, Let us alone. If you have a more modern version, that those words might not be there. I'm using the English standard, and it's not there. But if you look in the, uh, the notes of the New English translation, it will tell you that definitely the sense of the Greek is that this man said, let us alone. Leave us alone. Now, it just so happens that that phrase, let us alone, which this demoniac cried, that phrase is only found in one other place in the whole Bible. Now keep one of uh, your markers here in Mark and uh, turn back to Exodus and chapter 14. 
And we will to see the, the verbal link here with the attitude of this people who, through Moses, God was trying to bring out of Egypt, not just physically bring out of Egypt, but spiritually bring them out of Egypt and deal with this superstitious, idolatrous mindset that they'd inherited by being in Egypt for 400 years. So in Exodus chapter 14, have a look here at verse 10. This is where they've, they've come out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his chariots are on the, the charge trying to catch up with them. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Only at the time that phrase comes in the entire Bible, leave us alone or let us alone. And I believe that Mark chapter 1 is bringing us back to that. It's the same attitude that idolatrous Israel had. They wanted to go back to Egypt in the mines because they were still caught up in the, the superstitious thinking of Egypt. You'll also notice here in this section, um, in verse, where it says, hold your peace. Which verse is that in? No, in, in uh, Exodus 14. Verse 14. So verse 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent or you hold your peace. Now that's another echo back with uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent or hold your peace. Come out of him. So Jesus is picking up on that, that connection with Exodus chapter 14. Another connection, have a look at uh, verse 24 again, back in Mark chapter 1. So, let us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, once again, that phrase, to destroy us, is very rare in the Bible. It's only found in two other places, and we'll look at both of them. One is in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So if you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we'll see again that the language here is taken from the attitude of mind of the generation that physically came out of Egypt, but spiritually it took a lot longer. So Deuteronomy chapter 1, and uh, we'll look here just at verse 27. And Moses here is referring to that generation that came out of Egypt and in verse 27, you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Very rare phrase, only found in that miracle, only found here. And also, if you want to look at Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, and uh, we'll look here 
at verse 7. Which says, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? That, that same attitude of mind is now manifesting itself years later in the days of Joshua. Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Same sort of thinking. It's natural to... Uh, that human mind that doesn't want to depend on God's way of doing things, but likes to be in control and the people feel unsafe at this point. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now that's interesting too, because Joshua here is concerned about the fame of, of what's going on here. Well, if you come back to Mark chapter 1, another little echo here. Mark chapter 1, and there is uh, talk here about the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in verse uh, 26, it says, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. First of all, note that idea of crying out with a loud voice is another echo with the plagues of Egypt. When the Egyptians uh, lost their firstborn, there was a great loud cry throughout the land of Egypt. And then verse 27, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That's what Joshua was concerned with. The fame spreading. And that's another echo with the Exodus. Let's look at a couple of passages. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, and uh, have a look here at how the fame of Yahweh spread after he executed judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. So Exodus 15, verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. The fame of that event had spread abroad. And just look again in Joshua. Turn one more time to Joshua, and this time chapter 2. We'll see how the, the fame of this event had spread. So Joshua chapter 2, and at verse 9. This is talking about Rahab, when the spies came to Rahab. And look what Rahab says. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and, and so on. We've heard about it. And so the fame of Yahweh spread abroad. It's a lot of fun to go through these miracles and, and to, to pick up these verbal links. Uh, 
for instance, the Gadarene demoniac. There's a lot of verbal links to the captivity in, uh, in Babylon, and they're coming out of Babylon and out of the idolatrous um, nation that that was. And, and you can go through each of these miracles, and you can see that this parable is demonstrated in each one. That what's being dealt with with these miracles is idolatry. And what the New Testament really do, is doing is confirming what the Old Testament does in connecting demons with gods and idols. And what the casting out of demons is, it's all a parable to demonstrate that Yahweh is more powerful than the gods of the nations. And again, Jesus didn't sit down with the people in the synagogue and with a demoniac and have a, you know, a nice little chat going through the various passages of Scripture, demonstrating rationally that this man had a disease. It's not really a demon. Demons don't exist. It wouldn't have helped one little bit. And so what was demonstrated in these miracles is that that power of God that was invested in the Lord Jesus Christ was stronger than the demons. So stop fearing demons and start fearing Yahweh. That's the message of these miracles. And it's a, it's a good lesson for us. This world is infected with idolatry. Things that people trust in. And our task in our preaching, not just to people who believe in demons, but people who trust in the, in the gods of this world, whether it's money, fame, power, whatever it is, our task is to show that the power of the gospel is greater to help sort out the problems that people encounter, and that the things of the world ultimately have no power to save, and that Yahweh is sovereign over all things. Now, to, to close, let's have a look at another couple of things to do with demon miracles. If you want to come back to the New Testament, to the Gospel record of Luke, and Luke chapter 4, and... Verse 35, this is that miracle, that Luke's record of that miracle. So it's the parallel to what we looked at in Mark chapter 1. And notice the language here, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down to the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So Jesus actually addresses the demon. That's how it reads, doesn't it? It doesn't say that Jesus said to the man who was supposedly possessed with a demon, but he wasn't really. It doesn't say that. It says that Jesus spoke to the demon, be silent and come out of him. So he rebukes the demon in the language of Luke chapter 4. But then turn on uh, a couple of verses later to verse 38. It says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. You see the parallel in the language here? It's kind of interesting that we have Jesus rebuking the demon that comes out of the man, but then only moments later, he rebukes, not the demon, but the fever. And this time, the malady of 
this time Peter's mother-in-law, her malady is described as her having a fever. Now, other people might have said she's possessed with a demon. But the point here is, brothers and sisters, that probably Peter's mother-in-law didn't believe in demons. So demon language is not used to describe her illness. It's her illness that is rebuked and comes out of her. And what we find here, and um, this is one of... Uh, one of those long words which you probably don't use every day of your lives, but it's uh, useful to, to consider this. We use what is called phenomenological language. Try to say that six times fast. We, we use this kind of language every day. It's, 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 it's a way that we speak. And this is what is going on with a lot of these demon miracles. So phenomenological language is um, best described by a, an example. We talk about the sun rising and setting. Well, it doesn't rise and set at all, does it? It's actually scientifically false to say, when you get up in the morning, oh, look, the sun is rising. It's wrong. But it's, it's language we use from our perception. So from our point of view, the sun is rising, and then it goes down at night. That's how we talk, and we understand it. Same thing is going on with the demon miracles. So in this first uh, occurrence here of rebuking the demon, it's used in this phenomenological language. From the point of view, from the onlookers in Luke 4, verse 35, what was going on here was Jesus was speaking to the demon and it was being cast out. That's what they saw. And that's what's recorded. But with Peter's mother-in-law... What the onlookers saw here is, oh, she has a fever, and Jesus is rebuking the fever, and it's coming out of her. It's, it's just simply the language that was used. And in those days, let's imagine that a man with the unclean spirit had um, a mental illness, schizophrenia, for instance. It wasn't even a word. It wasn't even a concept of mental illness in that sense back in the first century. There was no language to describe it. They couldn't have used the gospel writers couldn't have said this was a man with schizophrenia or some other mental illness they simply had to use the language of the day and from the point of view of the onlookers this man was possessed with a demon now there's another point that comes out of this which is rather interesting and brother Stephen Snowblin did a lot of research into this and um, he demonstrated, he went through each of the demon miracles, and he showed that demons are geographically challenged. So what we find is that Jesus, Jesus performs miracles all over the place, up in the north, down in the south, Jerusalem, all over the place. There's many, many miracles, healings that Jesus performs. But what we find is that Jesus only ever heals demons up here in Galilee. He never heals people with demons down here. He heals people, blind people, deaf people, dumb people, people who appear to have mental illnesses. Even. He heals them down here, but their disease, their malady, is never ascribed to a demon. It simply says that person was dumb or blind. Whereas up in the north, it was a demon. What's interesting about that is that the understanding of demons differed in the north and the south. This was a very Gentile area, of course. We have Samaria and Galilee, and we have Tyre and Sidon, very 
Gentile, very idolatrous area. And here the rabbis tended to believe in demons. But down in the south, they didn't believe in demons. And the lesson is for us, brothers and sisters, is that if you believe in demons, demons exist. In your mind, at least. If you don't believe in demons, they don't exist. Same thing with ghosts. You know, you see a shadow. If you believe in ghosts, you see a ghost. If you don't believe in ghosts, you just simply see a shadow. Or that's that thing in the sky. If you believe in UFOs, oh, it's a UFO. If you don't believe in UFOs, it's just a plane. Similar thing is going on in the gospel records. And so, brothers and sisters, it is very difficult, of course, to deal with the topic of demons as far as preaching is concerned. And some of these things might not work if you're talking to people who believe in demons and are very superstitious. What does work, though, and what has been demonstrated to work, and I was speaking to someone earlier this week, and this is the, the method they, they use, is simply to show that Yahweh is sovereign and Yahweh is the one that we ought to serve. And then we can leave aside those gods. And then what the New Testament does later on, having demonstrated the sovereignty of Yahweh, then the New Testament in passages like Corinthians that we'll look at later in the week, demonstrates that in reality, demons have no existence at all.